And Lord, I pray that we would truly have that spirit about us, that we would stand in awe of who you are, awe of your majesty, awe of your glory and your perfection. And Lord, it's an amazing thing that you set aside those attributes and came as that little child who was God incarnate in order to minister to sinful men. And Lord, you entered in and you changed our lives. And Father, because of this great work, we just seek you out through your word one more time that you would bless us, that you would minister to us, that you would prepare us, we pray, for every good work we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You turn and greet your neighbors. Howdy, neighbors. Greetings. Well, I hope everybody had a Merry Christmas, and now that Christmas is over, we're going to have one more Christmas study. This is going to be the days after Christmas, so go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 2. I'll start reading at verse 1, and as always, if you arrived here today without a Bible, we'd like for you to follow along, and there should be one in front of you underneath the seats, but if there isn't, if you raise your hands, the ushers will bring a Bible to you. Does anybody need one? Everybody good? One other thing before we start, you saw the the woman who was grieving up here, that was Glory. Glory just recently lost her brother, and it's just kind of hit her all at once. So I want to just lift up her and and her family. Father, we lift up Glory and her family, and we just pray that you would bless them. We pray, Father, that you would engulf them in your arms of love. Father, we are told that we do mourn, and it's natural to mourn, and we're going to have those times when we're overwhelmed. But Father, your word also tells us that we do not warm as those who have no hope, because our hope is in you. Our hope is in your grace and your mercy and the love that you have for mankind. And so, Father, I just pray that you would bless both Glory and her family this day, that you would give him a surety of who you are, and that, Father, they would keep their eyes focused upon you and not the situation. And so, Lord, we just lift her up to you and her family and just pray again that you would bless them. And so, Father... We just open our hearts before you now and we see that, Lord, how time is truly of the essence as we get into your word because people are dying and because there are people who are separated from you. And so, Lord, I just pray that you would prepare us to have, well, just to be able to have effect in their lives, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you go ahead and stand for the reading of God's word? Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judah in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judah, for thus it was written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. Then he said to them, or then he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child, and when you have found him, Bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. 
Then they heard the king. When they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented him gifts. They presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed from their own country another way. Father, once again, I pray that you would make this study real in our lives, that, Lord, it would not be a story that occurred so long ago, but it would be your truth intended to work change in our lives. And so, Father, we, work, we lift up the change that you desire to work in the next half hour, next 45 minutes, next hour or so, and just pray, Father, that you would bless us. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm not trying to be funny, but I realize when I said half hour, it's probably going to be longer than that. On Christmas Day, we saw the sending of a son was not really a baby being born, but it was truly Holy God incarnate. It was the incarnation of God. This is God who took on flesh and came to sinful man. But who do I say that he is will be dependent upon who I believe that I am. And I've got to make that determination in my life who I am. See, I had to do that. At one point, I had to make the determination that I'm a sinner. And apart from understanding that I'm a sinner, I could never really see that he was my savior. It's essential. And so we're going to look at a contrast here in the section of scripture that the Lord has given us today. Maybe you've seen it in the cartoons. I think Ben and Jerry, and I don't remember which one is the cat and which one is the mouse. Jerry? Okay, one person at a time. Which one was Ben? Tom and Jerry. Ben was gentle Ben. That was a bear, I think. Okay, Tom and Jerry. Which one was Tom? Cat. Okay, it's Tom that I want to talk about. Probably like Tom Cat. I can see how this works. Okay, it's a good thing you guys showed up today or I'd be lost. Tom. He's the one that had the two angels on his shoulders. He had the good angel on his right shoulder speaking into his right ear. What was right to do? He had the bad angel on his left shoulder telling him what was the bad thing to do. Unfortunately, he usually listened to the one on his left shoulder. You were the same way. You had both of them. You were convicted about the things you used to do. I'm talking B.C. days. You were convicted about the things. Matter of fact, it even applies to today. But convicted about those things. Sometimes you just shoved off the one on your right shoulder and and you listened to the one on your left shoulder. And actually, believe it or not... There's biblical precedence, not for the two angels on each shoulder, but the concept. That would be in Romans chapter 7, starting at verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to... I mean, you should be able to relate to this. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do, but the evil that I will not to do, that I practice. Now if I, (coughs) excuse me, Now, if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then a law that is 
that evil is present within me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. But I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, O wretched people that we are, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Christ Jesus our Lord. So then, with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. He skips down to verse 8. In the midst of his despair, he finds truth. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. I remember teaching those verses when we were going through the book of Romans. We've been to them a couple of times. We'll be there on Wednesday morning in a few weeks, few months actually. And I remember having to go through just verse by verse. Because you read through those verses and they can be kind of confusing. Now what is he really talking about here? But it's one of those things that are kind of confusing, but you know exactly what he's saying. Because if you're truly a born-again believer who desires to please God, sometimes you find yourself doing the things that you will not to do. And sometimes the things that you want to do, you find yourself not doing as well. And we can go crazy in this area because you've got that bad angel on your shoulder. Theoretically, for an illustration, there's not really angels sitting on your shoulder, so don't leave here thinking that. But you've got that one that whispers in your ear how bad of a Christian you must really be. But you have not an angel, but the Lord who has died for you that shows you your worth. But again, we can so struggle with that concept. So looking at it from a Christmas perspective, in the context of the scriptures we're looking at here today, this morning, I know in my life sometimes I can be such a Herod. A Herod, a Herod who desires to kill Christ off in my life. And sometimes I can be such a wise man who seeks to worship Christ with my life and with all that I have. It seems we live this life with the good angel on one shoulder and a bad angel on the other shoulder. So what I want to do today is finish off our Christmas season with the days that followed the birth. Now, it could be a matter of days after Jesus was born that chapter 2 started. It could even, as some theologians believe, even be a couple of years, but nonetheless, it happened after the birth of Christ, and here we are the Sunday after celebrating Christmas. Looking at the wise men in me and the Herod in me, I see this great conflict that exists in me. Verse 1, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judah, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. I can see these days as my life, as Christ came to me, and then Christ dwelt inside of me. There was Mike, who was the Herod Oldman, if you will, and then there's Mike, who is the Wiseman Newman. There were those old days and new days, and I can really see, I can really understand the Herod within me. I was desperately, before Christ, I was desperately trying to protect my kingdom. I was prideful of my life, and I was provoking anyone who tried to change it, anybody who tried to share the gospel with me. I had an effective shield, and my effective shield was my religion. Listen, yeah, you believe what you want to believe, but what I am, I'm a Catholic. And I wasn't really, I mean, I went to the church, but I didn't even have a clue. But nonetheless, that's what I would use. I would use that to ward off the gospel because I just didn't want to hear it. See, it was said in Herod's day that it was better to be Herod's dog than even to be his son and his wife. 
he killed one of his wives and one of his sons because he was concerned about them turning on him. Herod ruled his kingdom, and it was pride that ruled Herod. I tried to offset things with religion, and I tried so desperately because, well, religion was that effective tool. And Herod did the same thing. It was Herod who remodeled the temple, and that would be the temple that Christ would, would, would inhabit. He was trying to do the Jews a favor and trying to do the religious things. Proverbs 21, verse 4, a haughty look, a proud heart, and the plowing of the wicked are sin. And it doesn't matter how religious you are, sin is simply sin. And so before the Lord, pride spoke louder than the words or actions of my life. They were the earmarks of my life, pride. I was self-centered. So I was the Herod of my life, ready and willing to deal with any threats to what I have built, any threats to that kingdom that I had constructed. I knew what I wanted, at least I thought so. I thought I knew what was best for me. I thought I knew who I needed to be. And it was better to be my dog than to be a Christian that tried to share the gospel with me. Again, verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judah, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. See, even though in those days when I would ignore the gospel and shun the gospel and want nothing to do with the gospel and busy building my kingdom and pouring all of my efforts into myself, God did create me with a conscience. And there was the conscience and there was the conviction that enters in through the conscience because in actuality your conscience is the ear that you have for the Holy Spirit. Again, in Romans you can see that as Paul is busy hammering the nails down on the lid of man's coffin to show how desperately separated from Christ is he is in the flesh, that he also speaks of the conscience of the Gentile. That although we may not have God's word revealed as the Jew did, you still have a conscience and apart from the knowledge of Christ, you are, well, you need to follow that conscience. You need to live a perfect life apart from Christ, which will never happened, Jew or Gentile. But it was this conscience thing, this conscious thing that warned me that I was king over a crumbling kingdom. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11, He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, He has put eternity in their hearts, except no one can find out the work that, the, that God does from beginning to end. He's put eternity in my heart because I knew, even apart from Christ, that, I, well, I wasn't going to live forever. I knew that I was going to have to stand before a holy God. I knew that I was ill-prepared to stand before a holy God and try to ignore it as much as I could. Well, it caused a frustration to well up inside of me that I took out. Well, I couldn't take it out against God, so I would take it out against God's people. A man whose name I've mentioned before, Greg, I don't know what his last name is. I don't know whatever became of him. But he came to work for the company that I worked for. He was mocked and made fun of because he was a born-again believer. He's what we would call an unfire born-again believer. He was a man who was always sharing his faith, and we would ridicule him. We? That's me. I would. I would, along with the other guys. Being religious, I wouldn't do it kind of as blatantly as the other guys did, but nonetheless. And I can remember the day that we were sitting there eating lunch together on the same job, and it was just the two of us on that job. And I knew what was coming. I knew he was going to share the gospel with me. And so I already got my shield out and I was prepared to ward off whatever it was that he had to say. 
And he asked me about studying the Bible and reading the Word of God. And I falsely told him, I do that, I'm a Catholic. He didn't really buy it. But again, I presented a pretty sound argument that was based upon lies, and I was able to cause him to be quiet. And I successfully dodged that particular bullet, at least I thought. Sooner or later, God was going to arrest my heart. But there was the conscience thing. Because as I'm sitting there saying the words, I tell him, I'm lying to this guy. And I'm asking him, because I wasn't really, well, I was a liar because I was lying, but I wasn't a person who had the habit of lying. But I'm asking myself, why am I lying to this guy? Why should I even care what this guy has to say? Why don't I just blow him off? But I couldn't, because deep down inside, I knew he was right. I knew he was right, and I knew that's what I needed to do. Because, well, the religious thing was just a fallacy and a fantasy, and I knew that. But the thing about it is, you can be so comfortable in a fallacy and fantasy. Because it allows you to continue on in your sins, it allows you to continue to build your kingdom. See, although I knew what I wanted, I know what I wanted wasn't right. Although I knew what was best, I knew it was all based upon a lie. And although I knew who I needed to be, I didn't want to make the necessary changes to become the person, not so much that I wanted to be, but who God wanted me to be. But then, Romans chapter 10, verse 17, so then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. So I know in my life, it was all of the people. It was Greg, but there were other people who shared the word of God with me. A friend of mine, Carl, we were just out of high school, I think it was the summer after we graduated, asked me, do you want to go to the movies? And Carl and I would always party together. Sure, let's go to the movies, nothing else to do today. And he brought me down to Costa Mesa. I mean, Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. And I knew there was a rumor that Carl was kind of one of those Jesus freaks now, but I didn't really believe it. And I remember he brought me down there, and we went down to Costa Mesa, and we watched a movie, and I can't even tell you what it was. And then some long-haired, bearded guy came out and preached a message. And there was the conviction again. And I was really irritated at Carl for bringing me down there and put me in that space and put me on that spot. And I remember the guy gave an invitation and people are going down and I knew that I needed to go down. If only somebody would ask me. And then Carl asked me, do you want to go down? I'll go down with you. And I turned to Carl and I said, No. (laughs) I I was very headstrong, but I was very convicted. And so again, there's the word of God, and the word of there's seeds being planted, and God doing its work, and breaking me down, and breaking me down. And then at some point, the word of God penetrated my bulwarks, and that's what made all of the difference. Made all the difference, and I can remember the time when I heard the word of God just before I was saved, And it's just opened up the kingdom of heaven to me. All of that religion started making sense. It started putting that religion in its proper place. But the things that I did hear and the things that I did learn, it all started coming to life. And it opened these doors that had never been opened before. There were doors that I knew I needed to push through but was never willing to. But then when the word of God was preached, the doors I saw were open. And as all I had to do was to walk through. So, what is the difference? What is the difference between being a Herod and being a Magi? Again, chapter 2, verse 1, 
Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judah, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. Where did this information enter into these wise guys' life? Well, in trials and tribulations, God is doing a work. God does a work in the hardest times of our life, in the darkest days of our existence. God is always working towards the future. Why? Because God inhabits the future. God inhabits eternity. So again, that's the great hope that we have as born-again believers. As we enter into trials, my God already exists in those things. We're coming upon 2015. What kind of year is 2015 going to be for you? Well, we speak of prosperity, and we speak of blessings, and we speak of joy. But sometimes, all of those things come shrouded in a trial. And some of you very well, myself included, could be going through even the hardest times of our lives. But the good thing and the great hope that we have, God already inhabits 2015. He's beyond the constraints of time, is really my point. But everything that I enter into is already something that God has prepared for me. And so, in some 600 years before the birth of the baby, God delivers Israel into the hands of the Babylonians. And as we saw in our study of Ezekiel a couple of years ago, it was the best and the brightest that Babylon brought into their palace. And one of those guys was Daniel. And Daniel inhabited the palace, and there were many others like him that were there. We only hear about Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But God's got his guy, Daniel, in the court of the king. And as Daniel is there, there's also a group of other guys there. And the other guys that are there are the Magi, or who were described here as the wise men. Now, when we see them in Daniel's day, they are contrary to God. Here we see them seeking God. And do you see, there's been a change that has occurred. And the change that has occurred is all based upon God's word as it was shared by Daniel or somebody else. We don't know exactly what was shared or who shared it other than the star and the coming of a great king. But nonetheless, it's what changed their heart. And they're a picture of the Old Testament. The Old Testament, what are they depending upon? Now again, keep in mind, these aren't Jews, these are Gentiles, but they're dependent upon or they're looking forward to the fruition of God's promise. That's how anybody in the Old Testament was saved before Jesus Christ was always dependent upon or believing and receiving the promises of God. And so for some 600 years, so you see the magnitude of this belief, they're all looking for the coming of this king in that town of Bethlehem. And so just as there had to be an excitement with the release of the Jews and the rebuilding of the temple and all of these things, There were these group of magi, these wise men, who were seeing all of these things transpire before their faces and realizing that that day, that day is coming. And Luke chapter 19, verses 41 through 42, Now as he, Jesus, drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, speaking of Jerusalem, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this, your day, the things that make for your peace but now they are hidden from your eyes. And the things that he's talking about are the prophecies of his coming. And that's what grieved the heart of the Lord, that there were those prophecies in God's word so that they are without excuse. And we look 
at such rich prophecies. Again, in Daniel chapter 9, Sir Robert Anderson, he did all of the math of the days that are listed there. And the days that are listed there, the years that are spoken of, those groups of seven years, 490 years, all pointed towards the day of Christ's triumphal entry. And just as Sir Robert Anderson, I don't remember, I think it was around the turn of the century, the 20th century, he did these things, the Jews could have done it too. And they probably did do it, but they refused to recognize the Messiah as he entered in. And this is what broke the heart of the Lord. But not everybody ignored it. We, we saw Simeon, and you saw, you saw so many people that were looking for the Messiah, and even Simeon was excited about seeing this Messiah. And there was Anna who saw the Messiah and was excited about that. And we see other people in the Scriptures and recognizing Jesus Christ as this Messiah, but there were some who chose to ignore even the proofs of who Jesus is. And again, I did that in my life, even with people around me recognizing who Jesus was. You know, we had all those, or they had all of those slogans, Jesus is the answer. And they had this one thing that was written, I think it said Jesus, I don't remember, and you had to kind of look at it sideways and upside down to really see the word, and the answer is, you know, and there was all of those things, and there was a movement of God. There was really revival that was going on in those days. I kind of came in at the tail end of it. But God was doing a work, and I chose to ignore it. And so many people chose to ignore. And here you see the Lord's heart towards those who choose to ignore His coming. The Jews didn't see it, but the Magi did. The Magi were excited to see it. So, as with all believers, the Magi came out of their kingdom in order to seek God's kingdom. They came out of the place that they were at. Now again, you got this rich picture. Here they are, and they're in the world, and they're in the seed of the world. But they know there's a coming king, and... And through the word of God, they were called to go and they went. And we know, just read to the end, that they worshiped this child. But even as you come, you must go. You must go back out into the world. Not to become part of the world, but to minister to the world. And it's what they did. They ended up returning to go back. And I'm sure to tell others about this new king that they have saw, they have seen. In Micah chapter 5, verse 2, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathath, Though you are little amongst the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth are from old, from everlasting. And so again, it was all about the word of God and the prophesying of the coming Messiah. And so we have Herod. Herod was the part of us who wants to kill Christ the King. What was Herod motivated he was motivated by pride, and he was trying to keep all of his worldly kingdom together. And again, I can relate to that because I was motivated by pride and I was trying to keep my worldly kingdom together. I was not wanting to sacrifice it for the sake of anything. But then there's the Magi. There's the, that's the part of us that knows that we need to crown Christ in our life as the King, motivated by the Word of God and the witness of His Spirit through those who God has seen in our lives. And again, Daniel, Shadrach, whoever it was who ministered to Him, probably an accumulation of many, they were sharing the word, and we saw how the word worked its work in their lives so that they would come to Christ. As I like to mention in the midst of the service is the devotion that I shared with the teacher, these people who are teaching our kids to prepare them for the work done today. And obviously I knew what I was going to be teaching on today, and uh, I asked Martin, what are the teachers going to be teaching in the birth of Christ? And so how do I 
speak once again on the birth of Christ, because I speak on the birth of Christ and devotions that I do, and then how many services, but then I remember the Christmas story for today. Christmas story for today is in Romans chapter 10, starting at verse 8, but what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart, that is, the word of faith which we preach, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture said, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So then shall they call on him, or how shall they call on him in whom they have not believed, And how shall they believe on him whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah said, Lord, who has believed our report? So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. And so in there, there's a warning to the unbeliever that you must confess the Lord Jesus. Confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, and then you will be saved. But there's also a warning to the believer. How are they going to know without a preacher? See, if Daniel or whoever or the group of people back in Daniel's day, if they don't say anything, if they're mad because of these trials going on in their life, if they're irritated at God because, well, I want to be in Jerusalem, I want to be in the temple, I don't want to be in Babylon, I'm not going to say anything, then there's no Magi. We're not speaking of Magi here today. And God's plan is thwarted. Not like anybody can actually do that because we're told even the rocks will cry out if man is quiet. But it's God's desire that it would be us who preach the word of God. That we would see sinners saved. Because that is not the work of the world. Yesterday, we went to see the movie uh, Unbroken. You know, when you guys all say stuff together, I hear just... But I did hear Unbroken kind of go through that. So good. The Louis Saperini story. I've read the book. The book was excellent. If you read books and you haven't read that book, you've got to read that book. Excellent book. Some pretty hard things that this man went through. We went to see the movie, and the movie's never all that the book is, and how could it possibly be? They can't contain it all. But the thing that I kept hearing, and it's true to an extent, they took out the salvation story. And they, it's not so much that they took it out, they just never really got there. They went up to the point of him being released from, uh, from the Japanese prison of war camp. But the thing about it is, the world is looking at this man's life. And this is the key for us. They're looking at this man's life and they're saying, there's something special about this man's life. And they can't really describe it. They don't say relationship, personal relationship with Jesus Christ. They say, it's this man's faith in God. And again, they, they, they showed the end scene was him getting off the plane and hugging his mother and his family. And then they switched to kind of a little slideshow and they showed the original picture of him really doing that. And then they kind of spoke of his life a little bit and they told him how the faith that he had in God enabled him to get over this horrendous experience. How his faith in God enabled him to forgive the Japanese people. And they show him, I don't remember, I think it was 92, in one of the Olympics, he's running and he's carrying the torch for the Olympics that were in Tokyo, Japan, a place that he was imprisoned and tortured at. And you just see this great testimony of this man that even the world sees it 
and they can't explain it, and I don't expect them to explain it. Don't expect the world to teach you your theology. We have that here and responsible to dig here. I wouldn't pay two cents to go see the Egyptian thing, uh, the, the Moses movie, by the way, Exodus or whatever they call it. Don't tell me what it is because I won't be able to hear you. But I see the testimony of this man's life and how powerful it is. How about the testimony of your life? See, it can be just as powerful. They probably aren't going to make a movie about anybody's life in this room. But you can have just as great as influence on the people whom God has given you to influence by the manner in which you live your life and the words that you speak. See, that was Louis. He had such a great testimony in the things that he did, but he backed it up by the things that he said. You cannot just live a life and expect it because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Sooner or later, the gospel has to be preached. And this man, he preached the gospel. And it's an amazing thing. I think he was born in 1918, somewhere around those time, and he just died this past year. Matter of fact, he was going to be Grand Marshal at the Rose Parade. And he just passed away. This was a man who experienced so much. He, he was a man who ran in the Olympics in Berlin before World War II. He shook Hitler's hand. I mean, not so much that he shook Hitler's hand, but he shook history's hand. And again, it's just an amazing thing, all of this thing. And I'm just looking at this guy's life, and I'm thinking, my wife tells me I can't eat tiramisu. This guy smoked like a chimney. He drank like a fish before he was saved. He was tortured. He had dysentery. He had beriberi, and he lived to be 90-whatever he was. I should be able to eat a little tiramisu from time to time. (laughs) But that's completely beside the point. You know, you just see, God had a plan for his life. He was born in 1918. He went through all of those things, went through World War II. And what was God doing? He's building this powerful testimony that God is thinking, I'm going to use this at the end of 2014. Not even at the end. He's been using it. But still, I'm going to use this in 2014 in just a way that can't even imagine. Now, if you would tell Louis this back in the 1930s, he'd say, I'm never going to make it to the year 2014. I can remember myself and my brother, we were in the backyard, and there was some charcoal. We used to make campfires at night with my father's okay. And I remember doing the math on the wall. My mom was telling me I wanted to make sure that I was going to live to the year 2000 because cars were going to be able to fly in the year 2000, and I didn't want to miss out on that. But I remember doing the math. (coughs) And I was born in 57. This guy... Can you imagine? But God had planning and purpose for his life. God wanted to see the gospel go out in amazing ways. And so, here you are, Louis, and God, in essence, is saying, you're mine. And even before you're saved, you're mine. And so this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to stick you in a Japanese camp, and I'm going to torture you beyond human imagination or endurance, but I'm going to enable you to get through all of that. Then I'm going to take you out of that camp, I'm going to bring you back home, and then I'm going to save you. And then I'm going to use your testimony and your knowledge of me and who I am and what I'm able to do to save other people, to bring them into the kingdom of heaven. And most of you, and myself included, first time we heard about Louis Saperini was probably around the time when Greg Laurie had him at Harvest, which was a couple of years ago. But he's been in the Billy Graham crusade. His testimony has been used worldwide for many years. And so what are the hard things that you're going through? What are the difficult days that you've experienced? God's using those things. God will use those things. Well, you sure he's really using the things that are in my life because, well, a lot of times the reason that we're going through these things is because I did this, I did... It doesn't matter because the Bible says God uses all things, 
all things work together for the good. As I said before in Romans, Paul already hammered the coffin shut on the Jew, on the Gentile, on the unbeliever of all humanity back in Romans chapter 3. Validated all the way up to this point, but he said, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, He'll peel the coffin lid off of your coffin and you can come into the kingdom of heaven. And that's what we saw. Louis was as good as dead but God brought him back to life and used him in glorious ways and ways that he'll use us as well. So there is the Herod part of us that wants to kill Christ the King that is motivated by pride. And there's the Magi part of us that knows we need to crown Christ the King motivated by the Word and the witness of the Holy Spirit. Back in Matthew chapter 1, verses 3 through 8, When Herod the King heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judah, for thus it was written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then, then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared, And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child, and when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. Looking back at my life, my attitude was such a proof to me of the witness of the word of God. Upon hearing the witness of the word of God, just like Herod, I was troubled. I was troubled in what this would mean. Herod was worried he was going to lose his kingdom, and I was just as worried that I was going to lose mine. Why are people troubled? Because again, there's the conviction. There's the conviction. Well, you draw some parallels here, and I've got to ask you the question. Everybody seems to be fond of this particular guy, but why aren't they troubled with Santa Claus? Why is man not troubled with Santa Claus? See, Santa Claus, you could say the same thing about him that they say about Christians. He's very judgmental. Santa Claus, he's awful, prideful. He, he's very prying. He's praying, he knows if you've been bad or good, because he's keeping an eye on you. And there's that conviction that's there. And another thing, he's coming back. He's coming back in the clouds, riding on a red sleigh with a multitude of reindeer, one of them with a big red nose. I don't know how that works out biblically, but the reason Santa's not so troubling, everybody knows he's not true. Everybody knows that it's false. And so, if you don't believe in Christ, What's the big deal? What's the, why would anybody really care? Why wouldn't they just laugh as they laugh at Santa Claus? Because deep down inside, they know that it's true. They know the reality of Christ, and they know the reality of the second coming of Christ. And it's that which penetrates their hearts, and it vexes their souls down to the very core that they are. And if they're not ready to surrender their kingdom, they don't want to hear it. They don't even want you to mention his name. And again, it's that which, well, all humanity's kingdoms sooner or later are going to crumble. Where is your heart with the Lord Jesus Christ? The thing that is so troubling with all Herods is is that Well, they're raging, in Psalm 2, they're raging and they're plotting vain things. They're doing whatever is necessary to order to keep their lives together. John 3.19, and this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world 
and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. See, as king of your kingdom, just like Herod old man, you don't like a threat to your power. You don't like to hear that you've been wrong all of your life. That's part of the problem when we're sharing the gospel. People have to come to the place that they admit, I've been wrong up to this point. And you don't like opposition. Most people don't like confrontation. So, there are three viable options at this point when Christ is shared with those who are Herods. First thing, first thought, I'll kill him. I'll kill him off. And that's what Herod's plan was, that they would come back and share and he would kill off Christ. The problem is this perfect child turned out to be God and he couldn't be killed. Christ can't be killed. He can't be poisoned. He can't be killed with a knife and when you shoot him, it leaves no holes. You cannot kill Christ. He's always going to be there. You can ignore him, but he's always knocking on the doors of your heart. You can do whatever you want, but he will always be there. Matthew five seventeen through 19 Jesus said, Do not think I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For surely I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, not one jot or tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. And all is going to be fulfilled. Nobody can stop that. So you cannot kill Christ. I know. I'll divorce. Problem is, there's not justifiable grounds for divorce, and so your request would be denied. Maybe you can run off with somebody else, but to live in adultery brings conviction. And that's what most people will do with idolatry or some other worldview or whatever. But the conviction is always going to be there because God will never divorce you. God will continue to pursue you. And then there is the third option, and this is the option that is designed by God. Instead of trying to kill off Christ, you die. You die to who you used to be. You die to the old man. And the solution here is, once you're dead, you'll be brought back to life. You'll be brought back to a new and glorious life. And so now I'm dead to the old kingdom, and pride is one of the main things that had to go, but alive to God's new kingdom to humble myself before this mighty Savior who has lifted me up. And again, not to my kingdom, because again, my kingdom was so temporary, but to His new and His glorious kingdom that involved my salvation. Verses 9 and 11. When they heard the king, they departed and beheld. Behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Just as there was the part of us that resisted God, God will create a new person that will submit to Him. An inward change with an outward reality that we see in the giving of these gifts. The first gift that I see that man is able to give God, that we are able to give the Lord, is gold. In the Scriptures, gold is the gift that denotes deity. It's that gift which is fit for our King. To give God the gift of gold is to proclaim Him King and Lord over your life. Lord, 
Lord is the one whom you have given control and authority over every aspect of your life. It's how you perceive everything that happens. It's how you understand that ISIS, although it's a threat to the world, it's not a threat to Christianity. It's so I see the economy, it's going to go up and down, it's cyclical, but nonetheless, it's in the hands of the Lord. One day it's going to go upside down, I know that because I've read to the end of the book. I know that all things are working together for the good, but they're also working together for the end. I also know that one day there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. But I also realize everything that God has given me, all of my abilities are to be used for the sharing of God's word. It's to say that I give up, Lord, and you take over. Why, Lord? Well, to the Greek is curious. It's a test phrase in the Roman Empire to test your loyalty to Rome and that you would have to say curious Kaiser or Caesar is God or Caesar is Lord. To the Jew, it's Adonai. Adonai was the word that was substitute for Yahweh, which was considered to be too holy to utter. When used in its proper context, the name Jesus is Adonai, means Jesus of Nazareth is the God of Israel, Yahweh, the only true God. When you say Jesus Christ is Lord, in actuality, you're saying a mouthful. And this name is above all other names, because in Hebrew it goes even a little bit further because Adonai's got a personal, it's got a personal meaning to it. It means my Lord, my Lord. Jesus Christ is not just Lord, Jesus Christ is my Lord. And that's what makes all the difference. Jesus Christ is the Lord of my life. And that's what brought me into the kingdom of heaven. In John chapter 20, verse 13, Then they said to her, this is Mary Magdalene, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. Why was Mary so in despair? Because Jesus was her Lord. Now, she didn't understand the resurrection and all of those things, but she just knew that she was separated from her Lord at that moment. We know physically and not spiritually, but nonetheless, it broke her heart. It's great that Jesus Christ is God. It's greater that he is Lord, but it's even so much greater that he is my Lord. That's golden. Next, next gift that man is able to give to God is frankincense. Frankincense is the main temple spice. When the priest would minister, he would be reminded that he's representing the people and the prayers of the people through that incense altar that, again, the main spice was frankincense. It would have a very profound smell, and there would be that reminder. Again, it, would be, it was intended by God for that mixture of spice for the prayer altar to be kept separate from everything else. They weren't too burn that or even make that, that, that mixture of, of spices for anything because it was to be unique to the temple and to the worship of God. So just as I can gift God by proclaiming Him Lord, I can also gift Him by my prayers. What are the prayers that are a blessing to Him? It's a prayer that is prayed with proper motive. James chapter 4, verse 3, You ask and you do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. And so, if I'm constantly praying for selfish things, well, that's not a soothing aroma to God, but when I'm praying for brothers and sisters, when I'm praying that He would enable me in the ministry that He has called me to, it's an acceptable prayer before the Lord. Secondly, a prayer that is a gift to God is prayed in faith and in belief. In Matthew chapter 21, verse 22, and whatever things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. And you will pray according to God's will and according to God's word as you mature in your Christian life so that 
you are knitting your will with God's will. You're not knitting God's will with your will, but your will with God's will. Thirdly, a prayer that is a gift to God is prayed in the name of Jesus. To pray in the name of Jesus is to pray according to His nature and His attributes. John fifteen sixteen, Jesus said, You did not choose Me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask the Father in My name, He may give you. And then this last gift that we see presented here, the next gift is to give God, is myrrh. Myrrh is the spice of death and burial. To give this gift to God is to recognize His death, but also to recognize your death. And how your death will be knit together with His. Just as surely as the Father raised Jesus from the dead, that He's going to raise me. He's going to raise born-again believers from the dead as well. The reason I can surrender my life to Him is because He first surrendered His life to me. And lastly, you can tell the bad angel on your left, although I was once a Herod, I am now a wise man, and there's no going back the old way. Look at verse 12. And being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. The cross before me, the world behind me. No turning back. No turning back. No, no one goes with me. Still I will follow. No turning back. No turning back. Just as surely as they came out of the world, they went back into the world, a changed people, and they went back for the glory of God. God takes you out of the world. He change, saves you. He changes you. And then he sends you back to, in order to be that witness, that you would share God's gospel with this dying world. It's the only way that it's going to change out there. I was looking at, I was listening to a news show this morning. I'll just close with this thought. I was uh, listening to a news show this morning, and they were talking about the racial unrest that is existing in many parts of this country and all of these things, and they encouraged, we've got to get a hold of the politicians, and this must be changed. Well, you can get a hold of the politicians until you turn green, and ain't nothing going to change. The only way it's going to change is for the change to start here. The change to start here in the believer, that we would be motivated people, that we would go out there, that we would live and preach God's word, and as we do, we would see people saved, and it's that way that we are going to see things change. Things aren't going to get better. Read to the end of the Bible. Things are going to get a lot worse, but as long as we have our eyes focused upon the Lord, we understand that trials and hard times, difficult days, all are for the glory of God, that, Lord, you would use me, and one day you will say, say, well done. I so look forward to that time. Father, once again, we just thank you. We thank you, Lord, for what you have done this Christmas season and the opportunity for outreach and the, the preaching of your word and, and all that's occurred. And I pray, Father, for those who had the opportunity somehow, some way, to be able to share the gospel in homes and gathering together of friends and family. And we still have that opportunity as... These, uh, these holy days are, are not over with yet. But Father, as for us today, I pray for your word, Lord, and I pray for the effect that you desire for it to have upon our lives. Everybody here is at a different place in their walk. And I pray, Father, that we would truly be a people that would be presenting these gifts to you who has presented so much to us. And so, Father, we just thank you for who you are and all that you do, that we would give glory for you, Lord, in this coming year in ways that we haven't in the past, we pray 
In Jesus' name, amen. Will you all stand, please? A couple of...